Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come now to just pause and reflect upon your word to us today from James chapter 5. Lord, the word that we open up and we read from, the word that is preached on this morning, and not just words from a page, from a book that uh, is a book that was written, you know, thousands or hundreds and thousands of years ago. But Lord, a word that uh, is very real, very alive, speaks very much to us in our context today as it did to people when it was first written. Most of all, Lord, it is the word of the, of the living God. And because it is your word, it carries with it the authority of yourself to us and to our hearts. Lord, may we uh, keep that in mind as we just spend this time just contemplating what you have to say to us today. Lord, perhaps as the Spirit convicts our hearts of maybe things in our own lives that we need to address, Lord, help us not to shy away from these things but instead to embrace them because it is these things come from a loving God who loves us, who cares for us and, Lord, who wants us to live not only for your glory but to live lives which are truly uh, all about that abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so we commit this time to you now in his name and for his glory. Amen. Fire. No, it's all right, don't run. <laughs> it's not a fire in here. But fire, who doesn't love just sitting around, you know, a campfire? Anyone done that before? I'm sure there's plenty of you have. Don't you just love that? Sitting around that campfire as you, as you sort of stare into its kind of mesmerising glow with the, those orange and, and yellow and kind of, you know, sort of gold and sort of, you know, flames sort of lick at the charred wood in the fire and as the, you know, those, those golden embers kind of just flicker up into the air like sort of mini, mini fireworks and things like that. Bring, bring back some memories, yes? Mmm. Fire. It provides warmth. It provides warmth on a chilly winter's night. It brings light in the midst of a pervading darkness. With it, we cook delicious barbecues, we roast marshmallows, we might cook potatoes on the fire in the ashes and things like that. It's great, isn't it? Don't you just love fire in that context? Yeah. Yeah. Yet outside the confines of the campfire or other forms of containment, fire itself quickly becomes a raging beast. It becomes a, uh, something which devours everything in its path. As you've only got to think of the, 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 the incredible forest fires and the, the bushfires that take place not only in this country but in countries around the world where it takes thousands of men and, and lots of, uh, of manpower and helicopters and all sorts of things to try to put these things out. It's incredibly destructive. It's a killer. You think, well, what on earth has fire got to do with our passage today? Well, in our passage this morning, James gives us a very, very stern warning. A stern warning about something else that can be useful, but also incredibly destructive in our lives. And that is material riches. Material riches. Now, listen, riches are not in themselves necessarily evil. 
In fact, you know, in and of themselves, they can be very handy. And in fact, there are many examples in the Bible of, of people who loved the Lord, who loved God and who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, who themselves were, were quite rich. Abraham was an incredibly rich and wealthy person in his day. King David. You come to the New Testament, you think of Joseph of Arimathea, who was the one who provided the grave for our Lord Jesus to be buried in. You think of people like Barnabas, who was an acquaintance of Paul, a fellow worker with Paul, who must have had some kind of wealth because he sold a field and bought the proceeds of that field to the apostles to help the poor in his day. The Bible says that having wealth can actually be a blessing. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 19 says, everyone else, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. What the Bible does make clear though is this, is that riches and the desire for them can be incredibly destructive in our lives. Incredibly destructive in our lives. In fact, it can actually cause us to deny and even reject God and ultimately suffer eternal judgment and damnation. Listen to what Paul writes in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation... They fall into a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Many hurts, many griefs, many hardships. Jesus himself had a lot to say about wealth in his day. And of course, probably his most clear teaching on wealth is found in Matthew 6 in his Sermon on the Mount, where we read in verses 19 to 21, it says this, he says, Do not, do not, it's a command, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he goes on to say in verse 24, No one, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus himself said, do not do this. Because no one, as much as we'd like to think that we can, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. And money and wealth and riches can certainly have that effect on us. They can very, very quickly become our master in our lives. Particularly when we live in such a a rich and wealthy country as this country that we live in here in Australia. The commentator Albert Barnes says this, he says, 
There is no sin in merely being rich, but sin arises from the manner in which it is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart, and the way it is used. And these are exactly the three areas that James speaks about in this passage today. Now, there's a bit of conjecture as to who James is addressing in this passage, and I don't want to go into this in great deal, but, but basically some commentators believe that, that James is, is, because he's so harsh in his criticism, particularly in these verses, that he is in fact addressing non-believers. And I kind of tend to agree with, 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 uh, with those people in, in this you know, one of the arguments against this is the question that why would James be addressing non-believers if he, the, the, the letter itself is, is addressed to the Jewish Christians who have been spread throughout the Roman Empire? And that's a fairly valid question, I think. But what we need to recognise is that, that, that this is very much... Um, if you look at this, the, these verses, there's a very prophetic tone to them. A very prophetic tone. It's almost as though James is sort of taking on that, that role of prophet in his day. And when you look at the Old Testament scriptures particularly, you'll see that the, the Old Testament prophets spoke very much like this in pronouncing God's judgment on, uh, on people who, who use their wealth for, uh, you know, for, uh, for evil and for, uh, for their own purposes. You see in, in passages like Isaiah 3 and, and particularly in the, in, in, the, in the prophetic book of Amos where God pronounces judgment, but he does it, first of all, on the nations around Israel. You know, the, 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 the prophets in, in, in that, that day were speaking to God's people yet were pronouncing judgments on the surrounding nations. And there was a reason that they would do that. First of all, what it did is it would prove that God himself was the God who was able to speak to everyone in the world because he was the one who, with absolute and complete authority, he was the one who had authority over everyone and everything in this world. He is sovereign. So God had the right to pronounce his judgment on, on all of the things that took place, both within his own people and the people right throughout the world who are, of course, God's creatures themselves. But what it also did is it also gave a comfort to God's people because oftentimes these surrounding nations would oppress the people of God. And so in God pronouncing judgment on, the, on these, these other nations, then it gave a comfort, if you like, to God's people. Of knowing, you know what? Even though we're, you know, we, we might be suffering this oppression, God is in control. And judgment, God's judgment is coming upon these nations. What it also did is it, uh, it also um, spoke to God's people about the fact that God considered the kind of behaviour that these people were carrying on with as wrong. And therefore, if God's people themselves were to, were to carry on with this kind of behaviour, then they too would be judged by God for it. And so these are the very reasons why I believe that, that, that this these verses here in this, in this chapter 5 of James this morning Although they've got this prophetic tone, they, they speak it kind of like in that way to us as well. They first of all are a, are a declaration to, to all, not just to God's people, not just to us, but to the whole world, that God is the one who is in control. That God is the one who has ultimate authority in the world and who has the right to, uh, to proclaim what is right and what is wrong in our world today, particularly in the use of, of riches and material blessings of how we use money in our lives. 
What it also does, I think, is to also provide comfort for us as the people of God. Because, again, you know, when we look at it, we can, we can, be, we can experience all kinds of different oppression in our day for being the people of God. That kind of oppression can take different kind of forms. But what we need to understand is that God is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who is in control. And he is the one who will bring about judgment in his time. And we can take comfort in that. We as God's people can take great comfort in knowing that God knows and he understands what is going on in our world today. He is aware of what his people endure in our world today. He is aware of every single aspect of each and every one of our lives. And sometimes in this world we will suffer hardship, we will suffer injustice. But yet God says that I will one day bring about judgment in my time. And he will set every wrong right. Every wrong that has been done against us, he will set right. But he will hold every single person accountable for their actions and for their behaviours. And so that's the warning for us today as well in this passage because James is going to use it to challenge us. I should say God is going to use James to challenge us about how we ourselves deal with material riches and blessings in our context, in our own lives and in our own world today. First, we're going to look at the, as we open up this passage, James says this. He says in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Come now, listen up, take heed of what I am saying. He says, Come now, you rich. Now, when we consider rich, who is rich today? We might not consider ourselves very, very rich in the context of the society in which we live in today. Someone could say, well, you know, well, you're really, really rich. You say, me? No, I haven't got much money in the bank. I've got a big mortgage. You know, I'm trying to put the kids through school. Got all these bills and things to pay. I'm not particularly rich at all. But every single one of us here in this building today, actually, when it comes from a, when you think of it from a worldwide perspective, we fall within the top 5% of the richest people in the world today. Every single one of us. Did you know that? Within the top 5% of the, in, in the world, we fall within that category of riches. So we are rich. God says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Here is this prophetic language. Weep and howl for the, for the miseries that are coming upon you. And he goes on, then James goes on to, uh, to look at how uh, uh, three ways, three things that James identifies as, as, as being the way in which wealth is destructive and harmful for us in our lives today. And the first comes in verses 2 to 3, and he talks about hoarding. 
Verse 2, he says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. The picture here is that of a person who has got an abundance of possessions and they're all stored up away, you know, so that they can just use them at their own good pleasure. But whilst they're all stored away, what is happening to them is that they are slowly decaying and being corroded and, and, and rotting and being moth-eaten. They are slowly decaying. In the first century, there were three things that pointed to a person's wealth. There was food or grain, there was clothing, and there was silver and gold. And it was common for the rich person to hoard these things in either barns or, or, or their homes or you know, they, they, they'd store their money away. You know the parable of the rich fool we spoke about last week in, in Luke chapter 12? where this man had got a huge big harvest, a huge big crop, and he said, oh, he said, what am I going to do now? I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns to store it all away, and then I'll sit back and live it up for the rest of my life. See, the rich man will be known for the, for the number and the size of his grain silos, for the size of his flocks and his herds, for the kind of clothing he wore and how many garments that he had, and for the amount of silver and gold that he had stored away. I don't know about you, my garage is full of stuff. And as I've been preparing this message this week, it's like God has been going, like this. Because we just, we just collect stuff, don't we? I'll put it away for wonder. I can't give it away or throw it out because it just, it, it'll, it's bound to come into use at some point in time. But it's not just things. People do it with houses. These property portfolios that people have today in order to get rich. It's interesting, I was reading an article yesterday of a number of you know, young people today and what they're doing is they're actually buying up rental properties and, and themselves actually renting and they're building up these property portfolios in order to get rich. If I can collect, if I can just gather all this stuff. Now, people with these car collections. All sorts of stuff that we try to gather to make us rich and to, and to give us a sense of security and comfort in our lives. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And what it's saying there is that the problem with wealth is, is that often what happens is that we are never, ever content with what we have. We want more. Isn't that the truth? We just want more. We find it difficult to be content and satisfied with what we have. The warning here in this passage is that to gather wealth to ourselves and to keep it to ourselves is both foolish and it is self-centred. It's foolish because it forgets that material wealth is temporary. It says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. See, all this stuff is just susceptible to, de- to damage and to decay and to theft and all that sort of stuff which Jesus mentioned in Matthew 6. Remember? Store up, don't store up for yourself, yourself treasures on earth where things rust 
and corrode and where thieves come in and steal? He says, don't do that. Jesus knows that this stuff is just temporary. Material things get ruined. They become worthless over time. And yes, yeah, sure, they might, bring to, they might bring a level of comfort to us and a level of security to us for a time, but ultimately these things can bring about long-term misery in our lives. So to put so much value on them is foolish and selfish. It's foolish because not only does it forget that this stuff is temporary, but what it also forgets is that God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. Come now, you who you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, that are just about to crash upon your world. He says, "You have." Laid, he says, "Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Evidence of what?" Evidence about what what are the things in our heart that we truly love and desire and and yearn after and find our security in. To, To hoard material wealth speaks of where a person's heart is. Isn't that what Jesus says? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It becomes the evidence by which judgment is then pronounced upon these people who view wealth in this way. Who find wealth and material possessions as, as being that which is most important to them in this life. James says eventually it will be the cause of intense misery and suffering. I don't think you can get any stronger words than weep and howl. That is to be overcome. You don't know if you sort of sometimes see on the uh, on the television, particularly in the Middle Eastern countries where they experience death, people just wail and scream at the top of their voices, overcome by the grief that has struck their hearts. And this is the kind of grief that James is talking about here, the kind of grief that one day is going to overwhelm those people's hearts who have not trusted in God but instead have put their trust and their value and their emphasis in material blessings and material wealth in this world today. He says, They will eat your flesh like fire. That's some pretty strong language, isn't it? You know, folks, the Bible makes it clear that we should share what we have in order to be a blessing to others. Because all that we have is from God. We, we pray about this when it comes to giving our tithes and offerings each week. All that we have is from God. We are just merely stewards of what God has given us, of what we have been blessed with. And we need to use our wealth in ways which honour him. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead upon God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that is treasure in heaven, so that they may truly take hold of that which is truly life. Those words at the end of that verse really struck me. So that they can take hold of that which is truly life. We often see that the stuff of this world is what life is all about, but Paul says, you know what, you just have got the wrong picture. You're putting the wrong value on things. You're putting the wrong emphasis on things. If you want to know what what true, true life is, it's about this, it's about being rich in good works and about being generous and caring and loving and seeking to bless the lives of those around about us before, you know, rather than just seeking to, to gather everything to ourselves. So James says hoarding is, is, is you know, really one of the, the main dangers of riches in our world today. The next is found in verses 4 to 6 where James speaks about the evil obtaining of wealth. He says, Behold, the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Folks, when our hearts become so captivated by material wealth, we can lose our sense of morality. We can lose our sense of morality, of what is right and wrong. I think a classic example of that is particularly in, you know, in current context, our um, Planned Parenthood in, in the United States. Some of you might be familiar with what, with what they, what, with what the kind of work they do in America. They carry out abortions, and they do it at right along the spectrum of the growth of the baby in the woman's in the mother's womb. And just recently, there have been videos that have been posted online about how they go about these abortions, and they do it all for profit of harvesting baby baby's body parts to sell to research organisations for profit. You cannot tell me that the, that the, the going after money and wealth and material riches does not impact on us in terms of losing perspective and morality. It is a, a fundamental human flaw. In James' example in verse 4, he speaks of the wealthy landowner who employs people to harvest his crops, yet he does not pay them what they deserve. He holds money back from them. He does it either by fraud or by theft. He employs a person to come in and harvest the fields and then at the end of the day says, well, actually, you haven't met your quota, so I'm only going to give you this much and not this much. Or he says, oh, no, sorry, you didn't put in a full day today. You know, you didn't work through your lunch hour. And so, you know, I need to dock you. I'm going to dock you for that as well. I 
And we not, might not be anything like the people involved with Planned Parenthood or we might not have a business where we've got to pay wages to people and things like that. But can I say that this still easily applies to every single one of us, that we can obtain wealth by fraudulent means. Not only that, we can also, use, we can also get richer on the back of other people's hardship. At Catalyst event earlier this year, we had Andy Collar come and speak to us about global corporations that get rich at the expense of the poor. You know, they pay a pittance for wages for these people in, 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 uh, in third world countries in order to make a bigger profit for themselves. And folks, sadly, we can become complicit in this by purchasing these items. We become complicit. Now, if you want to find more about that, you can refer to the Baptist World Aid booklet on ethical purchasing and also their, uh, their documentation on fair trade and that sort of thing on their website. But see, it impacts us in so many ways which sometimes we're not even aware of. But as Christians, if we truly have the heart of God, the heart of Jesus for the people in this world today, then we need to be aware of these things. The principle, of course, here is that it is always wrong to cheat others for our own financial gain. That's what it comes down to. It's wrong to cheat others for our own financial gain. And when we cheat and defraud others, what we do is we cause untold hardship to those people. James likens it in here to to murder. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Oftentimes the oppressed people in our world have no voice. And they're unable to do anything about their circumstances. And yet time and time again we hear God's heart for the poor and for the oppressed, for the widow and for the orphan, for the alien and the stranger. And as God's people we need to have that same heart. The final point is, is found in verse 5 and it's uh, this whole aspect of self-indulgent living. He says this, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Here's the image of a person who is completely immersed in the pursuit of pleasure in their lives. A couple of scripture passages come to mind. First of all, the prodigal son. You know, the person who took his father's inheritance, his share of the the father's inheritance, went away to a distant country and squandered it all on luxurious and pleasurable living. Speaks also of Luke 16, where Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, we're told, was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Lazarus, on the other hand, was poor and was laid at the gate of the rich man where he hoped just to get a few crumbs that fell from his table. A person living in absolute, incredible luxury and indulgence and the person who there right within his own sight at his own gate was just longing for some of the crumbs and was just denied time after time after time. 
And it says, Jesus goes on to say that both men die and it was Lazarus who ended up being comforted, but the rich man suffered eternal torment. Now, he's not saying here that just because you're rich, you're going to go to hell. That's not what he's saying at all. But what we see in the rich man's actions and he's, through his self-indulgence is that he's got a lack of compassion for the poor, reflected in his godless and self-seeking focus on his own life. And that's what we need to be careful of. As people who live in such a rich and, and blessed country as ours today, that we need to be care that we that we need to be very much aware that we do not have this all this, this same lack of compassion, this same focus on on living indulgent lives ourselves and not worrying about our neighbour. Alec Matir in his commentary writes this. He says, "The earthly cushioning of wealth. I love that word. The earthly cushioning." Of wealth dulls the sense of spiritual urgency and the reality of divine judgment. Because ultimately, what James is saying in this passage here is this He says, Here are all these people gathering, 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 not realizing what's coming. There is judgment coming, God's judgment coming. And the picture here is of, of a person who is fattening their hearts as a, as a cow is just content in being out there in the paddock and fattening itself up and, and living the life, you know, of chewing the cud and all that sort of stuff, not a care in the world. But then the next day it's taken off to the abattoir and slaughtered. That's how we can live. God's judgment is coming and God will hold each and every one of us as his people accountable for how we have used that which he has given us. Folks, affluence opens the door to carelessness regarding the reality of eternity. It opens the door to insensitivity and lack of compassion for the poor and the needy. And, it's an un- and it creates an unhealthy dependence upon our own resources and our own abilities instead of a proper dependence upon God in our lives. And because of that, it is an area of incredibly high risk, incredibly high risk in our battle to walk humbly with God every day. We need to be on our guard. So this morning as we come around the communion table, we need to to take time. Firstly, time to assess each of our hearts and the place that material riches has in our lives. Each and every one of us. That's the challenge of this passage today. How are we, what is our attitude of material riches and how are we using them? As we come around the Lord's table this morning, we are going to share in something which none of us at all deserve. None of us. I was reading the other day that uh, sometimes we, you know, we think that God has to forgive because that's who God is. God is a forgiving God. But the, the, the reality is, is that God does not have to forgive any of us. 
Because God is holy and righteous, he is set apart from everyone and everything. He is completely perfect, unblemished, spotless, pure. And he does not have to choose to forgive anybody based on his level of righteousness because none of us measure up. And yet God in his mercy and his compassion and his love, he saw our need and he sent his son. He sacrificed that which was most precious, of most value, of most importance. He sacrificed on a cross for you and for me for our sin. That is the glory of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. He would give his sinless life as a sacrifice for our sinful beings. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says this, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We're speaking of riches today. Christ who had it all in heaven, all the glories and the splendour of heaven, of that incredible communion with the Father in heaven, left all his riches behind to come and be poor, to have nothing in this world in order that we who were poor might become rich. He has set us the example, folks. And his are the footsteps that you and I, we need to walk in day by day by day. Remembering that we have a responsibility. Not, actually, we have more than a responsibility. We have, we have the, the, the command of God to be people who will just lay down our lives who will lay down our lives for each other. If that doesn't impact your heart this morning, if the love of God does not impact your heart this morning, in a way that that brings you to a point of saying, God, you are just so good. You are just so incredibly marvellous and loving and gracious and compassionate and merciful towards me. If that doesn't touch your heart this morning, your heart has got to be so hard. And you need to, you need to throw yourself at the feet of God this morning and ask him to soften it. To break it. Because if your heart remains that hard towards God, then all you can expect is to know his judgment when it comes to the end of your days. Can I ask the stewards to come forward, please, as we prepare our hearts for communion?